Let us pray. Father, whatever our situations in life, as we come to hear you speaking to us, mend us where we feel broken and detached. Mold us in the likeness of Christ so that we may be your people. Take this time that we spend together with you and challenge us and speak to us through the power and working of your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Over recent weeks, we've been making our way through Matthew's Gospel from chapter 19 to the middle of chapter 21. And we've been studying the story of Jesus as he continued his earthly ministry. We have seen Jesus challenge the motives of the rich young man. We have seen him challenge the Jewish notion of a prescribed formula and exclusive kingdom of God. He opened it up to the whole earth as he taught the parable of the workers and the vineyard. He has for a third time predicted his death and resurrection, and this time in greater detail. He turned the disciples' world upside down by telling them that they were to be servants as he was a servant and suffer as he would suffer. He healed two blind men. And he entered Jerusalem to the praise and adulation of the crowd. In Jerusalem, Jesus went to the temple and drove out the money changers. And once again challenged the tradition of Jewish teaching about the automatic spiritual inheritance of the Jews. Well, today we jump from verse 22 of chapter 21, where we left last week, and start in chapter 26. And let me propose to you, as the commentator Martin Kattler does, that what has gone before chapter 26 is an extended introduction to the passion story, which teaches us the outworking of God's salvation plan for all people. Over the next few weeks, leading to Easter Day, we will get an in-depth look at the events leading to the death and resurrection of Jesus. We will glean meaning and application that will amaze us of the great cost for our salvation and see God as our loving Father, desiring to draw us near to him and to know him. Well, our passage this morning in Matthew 26 is split into three sections. The first is set in Jerusalem. As the chief priests and the elders of the people plot to arrest and to kill Jesus. In the second section, the story moves to Bethany, about two miles from Jerusalem. Here Jesus is in the house of a man known as Simon the leper. And while he is reclining at the table, a woman comes in and pours expensive perfume on his head. The final section moves back to Jerusalem, where Judas meets with the chief priests and offers to betray Jesus for the sum of 30 pieces of silver. We will look at the plot to arrest and kill Jesus from verses 1 to 5 and then jump to 14 to 16 and then go back and look at the significance of the story at Bethany from verses 6 to 13. So verse 1 of chapter 26 says, When Jesus had finished saying all these things, marks the end of the teaching Jesus gave about the rule of God and moves to the action of the sacrifice for sins. The earthly teaching of Jesus is now complete and the significance that the Passover about is about to begin shouldn't be missed or lost. The Passover that year probably fell on the Saturday or the Sabbath 
Jesus is speaking on either the Tuesday evening or the Wednesday. All Jewish days started at the sundown of the previous day. The Passover was a remembrance meal. It was celebrated from the time of the exodus from Egypt. On the day of the exodus, each family were to take a year-old male animal from either the sheep or the goats. It was to be without defect. The animal would be slaughtered and the blood would be painted onto the doorposts of their houses. And then the meat was to be roasted and eaten. Nothing was to be kept to the next day. And if it was, it was to be burned up. Well, on that same night, the Lord passed through the land of Egypt and killed the firstborn of every house, every household, and every animal family. The blood on the door frames was the sign that it was the home of a Hebrew. And the Lord would pass over it and no death would occur. We can read it in Exodus chapter 12. So one feast of sacrifice leads to the fulfillment of God's salvation plan in the sacrifice of Christ. In verse 2, Jesus once again tells his disciples that he will be handed over, handed over to be crucified. He knows that it's going to happen. He knows that it's going to happen over the next number of days. And he gladly goes out to it. But meanwhile, as Jesus is wrapping up his teaching ministry, there is a plot being put together in Jerusalem. The chief priests and elders of the people were meeting in the palace of Caiaphas, the high priest. Matthew is very clear that this was a plot to arrest Jesus in a very sly and underhand way. Jerusalem was full of people. This was the time when the pilgrims would come from throughout the country to worship at the temple in Jerusalem for the celebration of the Passover. And Jesus had already been in the city for two days or so and had taught in the temple and the people had accepted him as a teacher. So they were behind him, they were in support of him. And so to arrest a popular figure would have brought about riots and chaos. The timing of these actions was crucial to the religious authorities. But do you notice one thing in the passage? Do you notice who is missing? We've talked about the chief priests and the elders of the community. But one group of people who we have been looking at and who we've been seeing dealing with Jesus are now missing from the whole story as it's finally coming together in its great ending. Throughout the ministry of Jesus, the Pharisees and the scribes have been the main opponents to him. They are represented in the Sanhedrin, that is the council who would rule in local areas. But now we turn to those who are really running the country from Jerusalem. So even though they are represented, they have no place in what is about to happen. Matthew is making it very clear that what is going to happen, the decisions that are now being made, aren't being made by the spiritual leaders of Israel. But it is the official representatives of that state of Israel who are going to pronounce the death sentence on Jesus. It is them who will finally reject the Messiah and not just the religious leaders alone. So with the plot put in place, they are still at a dead end in how to go about seeing it through. They don't want any trouble. They are afraid of, as we read in verse 5, of a riot happening. Well, one commentator, R.T. France, says an arrest was possible only during the feast, and yet it was bound to cause trouble unless it could be done by stealth. 
It was to this dilemma that Judas's offer provided the unexpected answer. And so we'll jump eight verses to see one of Jesus' own disciples come and offer his services as a solution to the problem. Judas goes and meets with the chief priests. This is no mistake. It is no accident. Judas goes with a clear intention. It is he who goes. He is not sought out. He offers to see Jesus arrested in whatever way he can bring that about. But why the betrayal? Why is this disciple of Jesus willing to give up everything that he has learned over the past three years and hand Jesus over? Why would he turn his back on someone that he had lived and worked with for the past three years? Well, there could be a number of reasons why. If we were to turn to John chapter 12 and verse 6, one would be that Judas had an eye for financial gain. He stole money from the bag that he had been entrusted with. This money bag contained the living expenses, as it were, of the disciples. However, financial gain was unlikely to be the reason for such betrayal. The most likely reason was that Judas was disillusioned. He recognized Jesus as the Messiah, but as we thought a few weeks ago, not the Messiah that he had intended. Judas wanted a Messiah, like many of his time, who would come in, a militant one, who would clear all of that promised land, what the Bible calls Palestine, of whatever rule there was that would hinder them from being a self-determining and sovereign people. He wanted someone who would come in and take the Roman Empire out and firmly establish the throne of David. That's who he was expecting Jesus to be. But here it looks as if it's a dead end. Jesus is about to face the end that they really didn't want. So Judas most likely was disillusioned. But the problem with Judas was that he missed the point. He was so concerned about his own hopes and ambitions that he missed the meaning of Jesus as Messiah. He couldn't see how a spiritual renewal from the old religious way to a new salvation relationship with God was important. He didn't see the religious ways as being a problem. He saw the fact that Rome was in charge as the problem and the Jews didn't have it the way that they always wanted it. And he did it all. For 30 pieces of silver. The pay given to a day labourer for four months work. In Exodus 21 verse 32. It is the amount given to an owner for the loss of a slave. Zechariah 11 verse 12 prophesies that the 30 pieces of silver would be weighed out. As an inadequate wage for the rejected shepherd who was the Messiah figure. That's all he did it for. 30 pieces of silver. He missed the point. Do we miss the point of Jesus? Do we time and time again see Jesus as a ways to an end rather than the reality that he is our intermediary with God? Jesus is all about renewal. He wants to bring fresh new way into our lives. He is not about just doing what we always do but each day empowering us by the power of the Spirit for good works that have been prepared for us, as Ephesians 2 and 10 tells us. 
Jesus brings to our lives not just the forgiveness of sins and the promise of eternity in heaven in the presence of God, but a relationship with him while we are here on earth. Over the past few weeks, we have been challenged about Lent and how we do Lent as we approach Easter Day. Over the past week, how have you been drawn closer to God by what you have been doing through whatever in Lent? Has going through this time of giving something up actually brought us closer to God by spending more time with family, doing more activity within our families and our communities as we portray and show the love of Christ to those around us? Or through by saving time so that we can spend it with him? How has that been in the past week? Are we catching a new vision of Jesus? Of who he is each day? Not just a good man, but the one who would bridge the distance between a perfect God and an imperfect human. I have had to wear glasses from the age of four. And if I'm honest with you, I really don't like it. As we've discovered on many Friday nights at Youth Fellowship, the ball kind of likes to go from my face and the glasses kind of end up in many shapes and forms. Please don't judge me on my sporting ability or lack thereof. But I have to wear them. If I don't put them on in the morning, what has now become a habit of 26 or 7 odd years of doing it, things are small to me. They're blurred. I can't see right into the day. Jesus, or Judas's view of Jesus was too small. He didn't get it. Do you get it? Put your trust in him for every aspect of every day, as if putting glasses on by habit. Go into the school or the college, the office or factory, the shop, the gym or the library, with a view of Jesus that isn't limited by our own ideas, a view that isn't too small or out of focus, but a view of the truth of who he is. That's the plot against Jesus. What they schemed and planned and how Judas rushed in to save the day with this option for them. But nestled in the middle of the plot to arrest Jesus is the story of the meal in Bethany. We pick it up at verse 6 in chapter 26. And here Jesus and his disciples are in the home of Simon the leper. As far as we know, we haven't come across Simon before in the gospel accounts. But we do read that in the life of Jesus, he had many friends in Bethany. And as it was the Passover time, it is unlikely that Jesus was in the home of someone who had leprosy. As this would have made him ritually unclean for the festival that was to happen. It is most likely, as the commentators state, that Simon is a healed leper. Perhaps someone Jesus had healed And the poor man had the nickname that stuck with him. So as they're in the house, the strangest of things we can ever imagine happens. An unknown woman, although John names her in his gospel as Mary, comes and pours expensive perfume on Jesus' head. I was thinking about this and thought the next time I go to eat at someone's house at a dinner table, the last thing I would want is someone to pour something over my head, whether I had just completed my meal or not. But this is something that would have happened quite naturally. 
This is something that would have been happened or would have happened to a guest who would have come in to a house for a meal. Mark and John identify this perfume as nard. Nard is a perfume from the spikenard plant that grows in the Himalayas of China, India and Nepal. And in this case it most likely came from India and was used to anoint bodies for burial. It was very expensive and very rare. So this expensive perfume, this nard, is poured on Jesus. Something that was used to anoint bodies for burial. But the use of this perfume at this point was seen as an act of extravagant devotion. In the act it is possible to see the kind of death that Jesus would receive. We kind of know how the story is going to end. We know how Jesus is going to die. He's going to die like a criminal. Just like anyone else who had committed something serious in society. Something against the state. And those who were common criminals would not receive a proper burial. So therefore their bodies would not have been anointed. And in this act of devotion, by the pouring on of this perfume, Jesus has been prepared for what he will not be entitled to. His body is being prepared for that burial. And the disciples, the disciples are sitting there. They're having hushed voices as they cannot believe what is going on before them. They are indignant as the passage records. They see that the oil is expensive and think that it should be sold and the money given to the poor. They are basically saying that Jesus isn't worth it. And who could blame them? Who could blame them for thinking that it should have been sold and the money given to the poor? Because they have missed every other teaching of Jesus regarding his death. And here he was having burial perfume poured on him while he was still alive. They kept missing it as to what the the reason was Jesus was here. They missed it completely as to the sacrifice that would happen. Well, Jesus overhears what is going on. He hears their whispers and their, their criticism of the act that has been done. And he challenges their thinking as he does on most occasions. And he goes back to Deuteronomy 15 to state that the poor will always be with us and they need our care and support. But at this point, Jesus is asking the disciples to put aside this thought and to be with him. He is by no means saying that we don't go and help the poor and needy or forget them when we're in relationship with him. But in this case, at this moment, the poor will be there. They will be there long after Jesus has gone. But he will only be there for a short time. Indeed, if anything, Jesus, in making this point, encourages constant care and support for the poor. Kind acts of charity can easily be forgotten. But the act of loving extravagance will not. And that's what we've just witnessed. Loving extravagance. And true to Jesus' word, the account of this woman... This unnamed woman and her devotion to Jesus is recounted time and time again as we remember what she did to our Lord. In this account, this meal, this fellowship of people together, Jesus' closest friends, indeed we could call them family to him. In this account we see devotion to Jesus that puts us to shame. 
and unknown in this story displays the greatest worship of Jesus as Messiah, the Saviour of the world. Who of us here, in all honesty, would consider this extravagance, that it was an unnecessary or enjoy the blessing of seeing the Messiah anointed in devotion for what was to come? Are we with the disciples criticizing it as too much money? It's not worth it. He's not even dead. Or do we have the eyes that see it as the greatest devotion to Jesus? I'm sure we would all like to say that it's the second of the two. We see it as the devotion. That this is pure, extravagant devotion and love to Jesus. Well, if we say that, how does it reflect on our lives today? In the week that's gone and in the week to come, how does that devotion reflect on how we live our daily lives? How does it work out for us? Are we more devoted to the cleanliness and shine of our cars, the weekly appointment to make ourselves beautiful in the eyes of the world around us, the constant desire for possessions? How does that factor in to our devotion to Jesus? Are we devoted to Jesus as we would like to be, or do we let other things take priority? Life just gets on top of us. Life gets so busy. Something that made me smile recently as it challenged me about devotion was at a conference that we attended as a staff team recently uh, down in Spires Conference Centre. And Bishop Ken Fanta-Clark, the Bishop of Cavan, admired purchasers of Apple products. I'm sure some of you could rhyme them off iPhones, iPods, MacBooks, iMacs, anything that has that little apple with a hole bitten out of the side of it. And he admired them. Anyone who who buys any of these products who's a longtime supporter of Apple gear is the greatest evangelist you'll ever meet. Because they will tell you how good this product is. And they will tell you how much you need one. And how much your life will never be the same again unless you get one. Their devotion and loyalty to these products is astounding. And I will be honest and said I looked in the mirror as I wrote that into this because I'm one of those said devotees. But it challenged me. Am I quicker to start up a conversation as I pull out one of these appliances about how great it is, about how much it's changed my life? And how much my life would just stop if it was lost. Rather than actually sharing my true devotion of Jesus Christ. Of how much I need him every day. Of how much my life would be lost if I didn't have him in it. Our devotion to Jesus. What is our devotion to him like? We have five weeks leading to the celebration of Easter. If we haven't already done so, can we commit this Lenten period to being devoted to Christ more than anything else? And not just giving up something in Lent for the sake of it, but actually devoting our time. Whatever we redeem from giving up something, can we commit it to Jesus? Can we keep the first commandment of having no gods? before us other than the true God. In the Passion story, Jesus takes on the task that none of us can do. 
He is devoted and sincere in the road that is marked before him. As John requires us in chapter 20 of verse 21, again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Can we be Jesus in the world through our devotion and our commitment to him? I was challenged by these words this week that this is the great commission of John. Not Matthew's great commission of going into all the world, making disciples and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. But as Jesus, or as John records Jesus saying, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. There's no choice. Jesus says, I'm sending you. You can't pick and choose. Go. Be devoted to a saviour. Be devoted to one who came down to this earth and suffered, suffered humanly, but suffered spiritually so that our sins can be forgiven. Go into this week and may it become our habit, not because it's something we do, but because it's something we desire in the months to come, a devotion and a commitment to him that is unlike any other. May we receive the grace from God to enable us to do so. Let us pray. Father, in each of our lives, we place things as priorities that really aren't priorities at all. And something always suffers because of it. And sometimes, if not more often, that something is our relationship through Jesus Christ. Help us to have a right view of your Son and our Saviour. Help us to have our glasses on so that he will not be small and that he will be perfectly in vision. And may it be a habit for us each day as we strive to be made into the mould of Christ. Father, work in us and dwell through us so that we can go into this world and be the people that you want us to be. We ask it in Jesus' name.